Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and legacy of someone who has been called the most important African-American of the 19th century, Frederick Douglass, the escaped slave who became the greatest orator of his day and one of the leading abolitionists, statesmen and writers of the era. We'd love you to join our discussion. Just send us a text on 53106, that's for 30 cents, or you can email us at newstalk, at talkinghistory at newstalk. Last week we re-evaluated the record of Winston Churchill as a military commander, found out about the improbable adventures of an actress, writer and rebel, Victorian, and we also brought you new first-hand accounts from the War of Independence and the Irish Revolution. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on Frederick Douglass. Born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey into slavery in Maryland in 1818, Frederick Douglass escaped to freedom in 1838, changing his name, and used his story to expose the cruelty and the lies of the slave system. During his travels in Europe in 1845, he spoke alongside Daniel O'Connell in Dublin, who anointed him as the Black O'Connell of the United States. By the time of the Civil War, Douglass had become the most famed and widely travelled orator in America, and because of his leadership in the 19th century, he is been called the founder of its civil rights movement. He died in 1895 and in tonight's show we want to assess his life and his legacy. And to help me do this I'm delighted to welcome our eminent panel of experts. Professor David W. Blight is Sterling Professor of History of African American Studies and of American Studies at Yale University and he's also the Director of the Gilder Lerman Centre for the Study of Slavery, Resistance and Abolition at Yale and he won the Pulitzer Prize in History for his book Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Professor Christine Keneally is the founding director of Ireland's Great Hunger Institute at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut. Christine has been named one of the top educators in Irish America and is an award-winning historian. And her books include Frederick Douglass in Ireland, in his own words, Daniel O'Connell and the anti-slavery movement and black abolitionists in Ireland. Dr. Lawrence Fenton is a writer and historian living in Cork and is the author of Frederick Douglass in Ireland, The Black O'Connell. And he's also written I Was Transformed, Frederick Douglass, an American Slave in Victorian Britain. And he's a board member of the Globe uh, Initiative, in, uh, which runs the Douglas Week series of talks and events as the Globe Lane uh, initiative. So you're all very welcome. Later in the show, I'll also be talking to Professor Robert S. Levine, Distinguished University Professor and Distinguished Scholar Teacher at the University of Maryland and a leading expert on American and African-American literature. And his books include The Lives of Frederick Douglass and most recently, The Failed Promise, Reconstruction, Frederick Douglass and the Impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. An absolutely brilliant panel of experts tonight. And David, I might begin with you. Uh, congratulations on the Pulitzer Prize for Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. And I wonder, could you take us back to uh, the early life of, of Frederick Douglass? Because what I found fascinating is that growing up, he, he wasn't even sure what year he had been born in. He didn't know who his father was. And there were rumours that his father was was the master. Uh, and talk to me about his childhood and, and those early years. Yes, well, thank you, Patrick, for having me on. And I'm honoured to be on with your, your other uh, uh, Irish guests um, and Christine in particular, who <laughs> has taught me so much about... Uh, uh, the famine and Douglas in Ireland. 
Uh, Douglas is born a slave along a, a horseshoe bend in, a, in the Tuckahoe River out on the western shore of Maryland in 1818, uh, very much a backwater of the American slave society. He spends 20 years, the first 20 years of his life, as a slave, 11 of those years out on the eastern shore, uh, where he experienced about every kind of uh, brutal and sometimes savage treatment that slavery could wreck upon uh, first a child and then a teenager. And he became an agricultural laborer, among other things, a real uh, field hand. But he spends nine of those 20 years uh, in Baltimore, the maritime city, the shipbuilding city of Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, that's crucial because uh, becoming this urban enslaved uh, boy, then teenager, then young man has everything to do with why he was able to escape. But as you say, he never really knew who his father was. He, he knew his mother was named Harriet Bailey, uh, although he had only um, limited memories of seeing her. He barely knew his mother, but he never knew who his father was. Uh, he lived amidst these rumors that his father could have been uh, either of his two primary owners, Aaron Anthony or Thomas Auld, um, there is some circumstantial evidence for both of them, but we scholars have also never figured out uh, with any precision who, who Douglas's father really was. His father was white, we're quite certain of that, um, but Douglas did not know. Um, he grows up with certain uh, horrible disadvantages, of course, slavery on the eastern shore of Maryland, but he also has many advantages, and those came about because of gaining his literacy when he was very young, only seven years old, from his mistress, uh, a woman named Sophia Auld in Baltimore, then his engagement with churches, with uh, even eventually a debating society amongst the free black community of Baltimore, and his jobs working in the um, shipyards uh, of Baltimore gave him a vision out on to the world through these magnificent ships that were constantly coming in and out of Baltimore. But those first 20 years are without question extremely formative uh, in Frederick Douglass's life uh, and particularly the gaining of literacy and his realization by his teenage years that he was very good at language, very good at getting on his feet and trying to speak. And uh, that, of course, will be a major part of his historical identity um, not long after he escaped from slavery. And there is a book that he, he purchases called The Columbian Orator that contains essays and speeches and dialogues, I think including one from the Irish orator Daniel O'Connell. And he, he, he learns a lot about oratory and I suppose about resistance and about liberty from, from that. Along with the Bible, that, that book was the most important book Douglas uh, ever obtained. Now, he became a great book collector uh, later, uh, and he came to love Shakespeare and Dickens and, uh, and, and Robert Burns and many, many of the uh, English romantic poets. But that book, 
published first in 1797, a compilation of oratory uh, by a man named Caleb Bingham, um, was, was, was a volume he obtained when he's about 11 years old in the streets of Baltimore. He saw his, his white playmates, these, frankly, Irish kids. Uh, most of them were Irish immigrants' sons that he played with in the streets of Baltimore, they all were carrying this book called Columbian Order to school. It turns out it was the second best-selling school reader of all in America, only second to a book called the um, McGuffey's Reader. But as you say, that book was a collection of famous orations from antiquity, uh, from the Greeks and Romans, but particularly from the Irish and American and European Enlightenment, I mean, English Enlightenment as well. But the beginning of that book is about a 20-page introduction about oratory, how to gesture with your body, with your hands and with your arms, how to modulate the voice, and perhaps most important, it contains a uh, an analysis of how the orator must reach the hearts of his audience with a message, with a story, with some kind of power. And if one reads that introduction to this very day of the Colombian orator, and then you learn a good deal about Douglas as a speaker and a writer, you can immediately see the connections this kid must have found from the age of 12 on with that book, and it was the only possession he carried out of slavery with him other than the sailor's suit he wore and a, a little bit of cash in his pocket. The only possession he carried out of Baltimore when he escaped in 1838 was his precious copy of the Columbian Order. And David, th that escape is described so brilliantly in your book. And as you mentioned, he had that the disguise. He was, I think, he had some forged papers. Yes. Was was, and he was helped by a, a woman who uh, then became his wife when he escaped. Yes. Was he helped as well by the fact that I suppose Maryland, it wasn't as as far south as some other as some other states, so he didn't have as long a journey to freedom to make as others had to make. Oh, most assuredly. Uh, again, the fact that Baltimore uh, is in the Upper South is a city with train lines going north, train lines going west, uh, and is on the border of Delaware, although Delaware is, of course, a slave state at that point. It's, it's, it's not a state with that many slaves, and it's very close to Pennsylvania. So his escape plan, which he hatched with Anna Murray, uh, his uh, fiance, we might say, and no doubt a few others among his fellow uh, slaves and free blacks in Baltimore, this plan was to take, and it worked. It was an extraordinarily brave scheme. He took three trains and three steamboats in about 36, 37 hours, Baltimore up through Delaware, into Pennsylvania, through Philadelphia, up through New Jersey, to the Hudson River at New York City, one final little boat across the Hudson uh, in uh, late August of 1838. Uh, and he arrived in New York City with frankly no plan, uh, just that it meant freedom. And uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a portion of what we have come to call for so long 
this underground railroad. But what Douglas's escape shows is that that so-called underground railroad was not some vast network of people always helping slaves. This he did on his on his very own with the help of a few people around him in Baltimore. And he also did it with a great deal of good luck. <laughs> Extraordinary. Christine, his life then really takes off. He, he changes his surname. He takes the name Douglas, I think inspired by, by, by Sir Walter Scott. Uh, he writes his, his first autobiography. He also then embarks on this tour of Europe and ends up in Ireland. And I wonder, could you talk to us about this period and, and, uh, and that decision to leave the United States? Yeah, well, uh, just like David, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for including me. Uh, just importantly, also, he marries Anna. So when he arrives in New York, he changes his name and he marries Anna. And then they move. Uh, he debates whether he should go to Canada, where he'll be safe. But he decides to remain in America. And in fact, even though he's in the northern states, he is not safe. There is legislation, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1794, by which any escaped slave can be returned to their former master and their former situation. So he's always in danger. But he attends abolitionist meetings and he's discovered in some ways by the leading white abolitionist of the day, um, Lloyd Garrison, William Lloyd Garrison. And Garrison recognizes all the things that David spoke about, his ability as an orator, his compelling life story. And so Garrison offers him a job to be a lecturer to the American Anti-Slavery Society. And of course, he is a superstar on that circuit. But people doubt the legitimacy of his story. How can somebody who is self-educated, self-emancipated, be so articulate, be so brilliant? And so he decides to write his narrative. It's published in May 1845. And the preface is by William Lloyd Garrison, and it includes a quote from Daniel O'Connell. So that connection is there even before Frederick Douglass comes to Ireland. And the narrative becomes a bestseller, but it propels him into the limelight in a way that means he really is in danger of being captured. And so he's persuaded by Garrison and others he should leave America for his safety. And for Garrison, this is an opportunity to really build a transatlantic abolition movement. So he's very happy to send his young rising star overseas. So Douglas leaves, and for him it's very difficult. He's married to Anna, and they have four small children. So he decides to leave his family behind. He sells to Liverpool. He arrives in Liverpool, stays there for two days, and he comes to Dublin. And his intention is that some Quakers in Dublin said they would make a reprint of his narrative, and then he would be able to sell it and have some income while he was overseas. His intention is to stay in Dublin for four days, but he is made to feel so welcome. He stays for four months. And he's asked, will he lecture while he's visiting Dublin? And he gives his first public lecture in Ireland on the 3rd of September, 1845. And for him, it's very poignant because exactly seven years since he arrived in New York uh, had escaped from slavery. So 
that really is the start. The place where he lectures in, it's City Hall and the centre of Dublin. It's overflowing. He's asked, will he lecture again? And so he continues lecturing. He, as we know, then travels to Wexford, Waterford, Cork, Limerick, Belfast. And in total, he gave almost 50 lectures during his four months in Ireland. Not all of them were about abolition or slavery, and some were about temperance. He was a great advocate of temperance, of not drinking. So there's a mixture of lectures. But I've transcribed all of his lectures, and each one is different. He doesn't really use notes, and he can speak for up to two hours. And again, it comes back to that very thoughtful training and the way he applied himself and the lessons of the Colombian orator. And Christine, the meeting with Daniel O'Connell, it was referenced by President Barack Obama when he visited Ireland in 2011. He he referenced Frederick Douglass, who, of course, was a great hero of of the young Barack Obama and that meeting with Daniel O'Connell. We've had uh, the descendant of of Frederick Douglass, Nettie Douglass, on the show in the past. And she's spoken so passionately about the welcome in Ireland and what it meant to Frederick Douglass, but also that 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 connection with O'Connell. Yeah, so even before, as I said, he knew about O'Connell, he later said he first heard of Daniel O'Connell in 1838. At that point, he was on the verge of escaping from slavery. And uh, there was a new American ambassador in London, and he wanted to shake the hand of Daniel O'Connell. And Daniel O'Connell knew that this man was involved in slavery and refused to shake the ambassador's hand. And the ambassador was furious and challenged Daniel O'Connell to a duel. And this issue was repeated in newspapers in Britain, in Ireland, in America. It was debated in Congress in America. And Frederick Douglass heard of it. And he said, you know, I knew that if my masters hated this Irish man, that I should love him. So he later said his ambition when he decided to stay in Ireland was he really wanted to hear Daniel O'Connell speak. And he did this 29th of September. O'Connell had been in Kerry for the summer. He returned to Dublin and he spoke in what was then called Conciliation Hall. Um, It was a meeting of repeal. The building could hold 3,000 people and it was full to capacity. So Frederick attended. He was at the back of the room, standing room only. And when O'Connell sat down, Frederick moved to the front of the room and he was introduced to John O'Connell. And John O'Connell in turn introduced him to his father, And Daniel O'Connell stood up again and called on people not to leave, but to listen to this young American visitor. And so Frederick Douglass, who was then aged 27, was on the stage in Dublin next to his hero and made an impromptu speech. And it was a magnificent speech. And in it, he praised Daniel O'Connell for his championing of human rights everywhere. And what he said, he actually used the phrase, what my people need is a black O'Connell. So he really assigned that name to himself. And then he ended by calling on people. And again, a phrase he borrowed from O'Connell. He called on people to agitate, agitate, agitate. And that very much became his mantra. And there's no evidence the two men ever met again, no evidence they ever corresponded. And we know that O'Connell sadly died in May 1847 on way to see the Pope, um, the height of the Great Famine. Uh, But what that meeting did was it crystallized in Douglas's mind that he was a champion not only of his people, but of oppressed people everywhere. And again, that seems to have influenced Douglas's political and philosophical outlook. And we know that throughout his life, 
Frederick would refer to himself as the Black O'Connell, and he often quoted Daniel O'Connell and referred to his time in Ireland. So even though the men only probably ever met once, the influence of Daniel O'Connell on Frederick Douglass was immense. Lawrence, you've done such brilliant work as well on Frederick Douglass in Ireland and also Frederick Douglass in Victorian Britain and uh, the wider the wider uh, uh, visit. What insights have you gained from studying all of that and I suppose the different receptions he received in, in different parts of Ireland and then in Britain? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, well, the... Go back to the start. So, um, the start, we have to remember when he's in the north of the northern states, he's still kind of subject to verbal abuse, physical abuse um, on the streets when he's at meetings. He um, he's attacked at meetings. He breaks his hand at one of the, one of his anti-slavery meetings in, in in the northern states. So, one of the first things that happens when he's in Ireland is um, he just gets this thrill of being able to walk, walk at anyone, walk anywhere, and um, now, that really means a lot to him, resonates with him deeply. Um, he also, you know, he just admires the beauty of the city, but also he goes hill walking and he sees the um, the poverty that the uh, that the, the the rural Irish are 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 kind of uh, living in, living through. Um, as he moves down and around, you know, he starts his first speeches were relatively small affairs, like um, in, you know, he'd have scores of people attending them. Then there's um, hundreds, and then by the, when he's in the music hall in Dublin, there's uh, 3,000 there um, every night. He speaks there one night a week for three weeks, and also there's like 9,000 people listening to him in Dublin. He continues down through, and um, what I think he takes most from the time in Ireland is that um, he's out of the, the world of the American anti-slavery society. All that time, kind of 1841 to 1845, he was in some ways an organization man, a company man. His itinerary was made for him. He went, he traveled, he slept, he talked, he traveled, he slept, he talked. Um, in Ireland, although Webb is very close to Garrison, once he's out of Dublin, he's kind of out of, he doesn't have Webb on his shoulder anymore. This is uh, Richard Davis Webb, the Quaker, Prince, uh, Quaker Prince's book. And so in but a kind of mundane way, he has to plot and plan his tour himself. And then in another deeper philosophical way, he has the space and time to think new thoughts, think different thoughts. And this is where kind of the O'Connell influence comes in. And he's called O'Connell a, a broad-hearted humanitarian because he just wasn't a, you know, a single issue campaigner. And Douglas morphs into this broad-hearted uh, humanitarian himself during this time in Ireland. He takes this kind of um, newfound sense of kind of um, confidence with him to to Britain. So he goes from Belfast across to Scotland and he's in Scotland for a few months and the main thing that happens in Scotland is um he gets embroiled in a controversy with the, a newly established church called the Free Church of Scotland. Um they had raised a lot of money from the slaveholding south and uh his catchphrase becomes sent back the money and it's stalled on walls all across um all across Scotland and I think there was even a play made recently about Douglas in Scotland and the, the sent back the money team. Um, so and then he moves down, he spends the phones of a year, um, just one more near kind of mainly around England, Scotland and Wales. And again, it's largely very positive. The newspapers are very positive. People like Charles Dickens speak very positively of him. He meets lots of, uh, 
uh, important politicians, important people. Um, the, the success is seen both in terms of the sales of the book, but also kind of materials that Britain sends over to America for a thing that was called the, uh, the annual Boston Bazaar. And so this is a fundraiser for the American Isolation Society. And um, so the influence is clear in the amount of material that's sent over in 1845 and 1846 from Britain and Ireland is, is you know, like a dwarf that had gone over earlier years. But going on behind all of this, you know, where he's always, he's always thinking about, you know, when are we going home next? Um, when can I get home? Because, you know, as Christine said, he was coming to Ireland for four days. That ended up being four months. His original hold tour was meant, only meant to be for around four months. It ends up being nearly two years. So while he's here, he's, you know, sending money back to Anna and the young family. He's feeling very homesick often at often times. Um, he's feeling bad and guilt because he keeps um, telling Anna, I'm going to be getting this boat home. And then someone else says, no, you're doing so well here. We need to stay longer. So he's kind of always changing the date when he's coming home. And um, he was very close at this time with a, a Cork abolitionist called Isabel Jennings. And he'd write to her dear Isa and um, was, you know, like um, very open about his uh, conflicted feelings about staying um, in the British Isles. One idea then is that um, is that he's, he's suggested that he stay here. His, his, he was having such a successful tour, it suggested that he stay in Britain. And he was he was taken by this idea. He was uh, deeply an Anglophile, um, be it from the literature, Shakespeare, Byron, etc., and also from the fact that Britain had abolished uh, slavery in the West Indies in 1833. He he, he was just uh, totally enamoured of that and um of that of, of that move and it always um struck deeply with him so he was tempted i think to stay but um anna wasn't ready she was well um she had a close strong community in lynn massachusetts um so the idea of of the douglas family moving on mass didn't work later the next kind of stage in how he can get over how he can return to america um without having to worry about possible recapture because of the fame that his narrative had given him, was that a couple of Newcastle Quakers um, suggested that they purchase his legal emancipation, his manumission. Um, Douglas was struggling with this for a while because one of the things that the American Anti-Slavery Society believed was that, you know, a human was not a vendable article, and Douglas believed this too. And so a lot of um, Americanized slavery society people were kind of saying that you shouldn't do this. But after thinking it over, after dwelling on it, um, Douglas decides that, you know, it's his body. He's not going to be beholden to the opinions of these white Boston abolitionists. Um, he needs his freedom. He agrees and supports the idea to purchase his freedom. And um, so the Newcastle Quakers get in line with the um, other British anti-slavery activists and um, they purchase his freedom for, I think, £150 sterling, which was $722.22 or something. So um, around just around Christmas time, 1846, he becomes legally free. Um, he still stays in, in Britain for another few months. He's, um, raising some more, he raises some more money, and this is actually the money that he uses to buy a printing press with which he starts his famous newspaper, The North Star, and um, returns to 
America in April of 1847. So very, very good. The no, whole ex- tour. E- excellent. And I think the tour, I suppose, as as one of our texters has said, MN Tipperary, that uh, was critical to his formation as an activist. David, in the lead up to the Civil War then, we see uh, Douglas as this great orator travelling around the countryside, uh, a campaigner, he has his uh, newspaper. Uh, But let's go into the Civil War then, because in 1863, after the Emancipation Proclamation has come into effect, he does issue that famous broadside, Men of Colour to Arms. How significant is that in the recruitment uh, for the Union Army? Well, the arguments in Men of Color to Arms were certainly significant. Uh, the broadside itself is hard to measure and judge, although it was an extraordinary document and it was reproduced uh, in huge uh, uh, editions of it that actually um, were hung over streets in certain northern cities. Uh, we know this happened in Philadelphia, for example. Douglas first published that broadside in his own newspaper, the Douglas Monthly, uh, as, in effect, an editorial. That It then became this poster and this giant poster, a recruiting poster. The arguments in it are many, but they are essentially uh, join the army now that the Emancipation Proclamation has allowed it, even ordered uh, the Union forces to enlist black soldiers, But it argues that by soldiering, one would gain citizenship. By soldiering, by donning the uniform uh, of your country, of putting a musket on your shoulder, um, you would gain recognition as citizen, acknowledgement of your basic rights. Uh, And that black men, and this was crucial in those years, would gain a sense of manhood the kind of respect that comes with this old idea of manhood in making war. Douglas took that broadside on the road. Uh, In fact, before it was a broadside, it was a speech, as usual. Douglas was this kind of person who often didn't know what he thought precisely about something until he went to his desk and he wrote it down. By this time in his life, Contrary to, as Christine said earlier, when he's when he's just on the road there in Ireland, he did speak uh, often in a contempor- you know, an ex- in an extemporaneous way. But by the Civil War era, Douglas's speeches all exist in text. He wrote these down, and that broadside is rooted in a speech called uh, "The Proclamation and the Negroes and the Negro Army." Now. That's a speech he took on the road in January 1863, within three weeks or so of Lincoln signing the proclamation. And in that speech, among other things, he begins to recruit young black men. He begins to appeal to them with these kinds of uh, personal and moral and patriotic uh, arguments that you will see later in Men of Color to Arms. But he also says in the, uh, the proclamation of the Negro Army, He says, this proclamation frees all of us. It even frees the Confederate soldier. It frees the Union soldier. It frees young black people. It it frees all black people. It frees the Northerner or the Southerner. And he he even says so much as it frees this country from its history. Now, whether the Emancipation Proclamation can do all of that or not is, is always an open debate. 
But this is the revolutionary turn in the Civil War, not just toward emancipation, but enlisting black Americans, nearly 200,000 of them, in the Union Army and the Union Navy, and turning this war unequivocally into a struggle to destroy slavery and therefore, in effect, recreate the United States as a nation. And that is what will happen, at least in the immediate aftermath of the war. Could I add just one thing um, before we uh, leave Ireland entirely behind? Because it's very pertinent to these kinds of changes Douglas undergoes in those in that decade and a half before the Civil War. While he was in Ireland is when he came under a rather direct surveillance by his friends. And that meant by a man named James Buffoon, who was a Garrisonian abolitionist from Massachusetts who traveled with Douglas. And it meant uh, Richard Webb the Dublin publisher, the Dublin friend uh, who uh, reprinted Douglas's uh, narrative actually twice. Uh, and most importantly, a woman named Maria Weston Chapman back in Boston, who was a kind of managerial power behind the throne to William Lloyd Garrison. They were monitoring this young man and trying to control him, trying to control his message. And when he got news, or when he began to understand that a combination of Chapman and Webb and Buffoon were writing letters back to Garrison and others, uh, trying to control his behavior, his message, his language, he exploded on them. And it was the beginning, just the beginning, of a very difficult time for Douglas and the beginning of his famous breakup with William Lloyd Garrison. But by the time of the Civil War, he had become fully his own independent uh, anti-slavery radical, uh, his own uh, newspaper editor of his own um, uh, newspaper. And indeed, uh, the, the most important uh, African-American uh, spokesman uh, of any kind. Uh, by 1863. And David, it's also the case that he wasn't uh, a flawless individual. He had some of the prejudices of the time. We see in some of the, the comments on Native Americans or on Catholics or and so on that, that there were times when he very much wasn't in tune with, with, with more modern uh, sentiments. Oh, indeed. I'm glad you picked up on that in my book. Uh, he also... He, he had some uh, very stereotypical things to say about Native Americans uh, at times. He, he would use the question of Native Americans, usually when he was making the assertion of black rights. He would say, you know, uh, why can't black people have their liberties and rights, uh, the right to vote, et cetera, et cetera? We have been here since the beginning of this country. And he says, but besides... We want the same uh, growth and mobility and the same uh, enterprise that white people do, not like the American Indian, who he always portrays as that vanishing race who just wanted to wrap in their blankets. These are almost virtual quotes. Uh, they wanted to wrap in their blankets and go off to their mountains. He was also very fond, let's be honest here, of his Irish jokes. And sometimes those did not go over so well. Uh, he loved the Irish in Ireland. 
make no mistake. But it was the Irish in New York City that he had a lot of trouble with, particularly the mobs, the gangs. Uh, and he would often use the Irish yet again uh, through a stereotype. He would say, quote, if drunken Pat can hobble to the polls and vote, why can't a black man like me? Uh, and so on. So, yeah, he's uh, he also had a personality that was not always that easy for everyone to get along with. In fact, Richard Webb didn't like Douglas at all. The, the, the man in Dublin, he found him haughty. He found him overly ambitious. Uh, this was an extremely talented, gifted, smart, and ambitious, very young man who was, by the way, hypersensitive. You got to remember, he has no formal education. When he arrives in Ireland there in 45, he's only seven years out of slavery. He's only 27 years old. And the when he thought he was experiencing a racial slight or a slight about his lack of sophisticated education, he, he answered it often worse than it was thrown at him. Very good. Well, look, my thanks to Professor David Blight, Professor uh, Christine Keneally and Dr. Lawrence Fenton. And I'm delighted to be joined on the phone now by Professor Robert S. Levine, Distinguished University Professor and Distinguished Scholar Teacher at the University of Maryland. He's a leading expert on American and African-American literature, and his books include The Lives of Frederick Douglass and most recently The Failed Promise, Reconstruction, Frederick Douglass and the Impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Robert, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can I begin with a question about the lives of Frederick Douglass? Because you've done some very interesting work on the three published autobiographies, the different revisions that Frederick Douglass made to these works. Why was he always, it seemed, rewriting and revising his life story? Right. I mean, that's a great question. And that's that's the question I try to grapple with in, in that book, The Lives of Frederick Douglass. I, I think of his life as constantly in revision. So it would make sense that his autobiographies would be in revision. So the first autobiography, the most famous one, the narrative, he wrote when he was affiliated, associated with William Lloyd Garrison, the white abolitionist who discovered Douglas to some extent and inspired Douglas to some extent. And then Douglas wanted to move in different directions. So the first autobiography pretty much gives us Douglas as he's part of the Garrison organization. The second, which a lot of people think is his greatest, My Bondage and My Freedom, comes 10 years later in 1855. And this is after Douglas has left Garrison. It's after he's toured England and Ireland. It's after the fugitive slave law. And he has a different, more independent Douglas. He wants to present himself as a free black person, in addition to being an enslaved person. And he wants to present himself as uh, kind of in conflict with, with Garrison at that point. I mean, there's some really damning <laughs> commentary on, on Garrison in that particular autobiography. And then if you jump way ahead to 1881, this is when Douglas publishes his third and final autobiography, Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. And at that point, he wants to understand his life in the context of the Civil War, in the context of Reconstruction in the context of his friendship with Abraham Lincoln. And he's kind of optimistic a bit. And then he does one more revision in 1892 of Life and Times, where he's more pessimistic because he sees the rise of lynching and um, 
Reconstruction falling apart. And at that point, he's developed an alliance with Haiti. So, so again, there's a kind of different Frederick Douglass. So each, each autobiography captures Douglass at a particular moment in time, a particular worldview. And I think it's fascinating to read them together because he sometimes makes changes of, of events, the way he describes events, in order to bring out different significances of those events over the years. You mentioned there his friendship with Abraham Lincoln. He also wasn't afraid to be critical of Lincoln at different times, and at times there, there was a tension there. What was the relationship like? It's, uh, I'll just say it's a fascinating, complex, ever-changing relationship. But as you say, he was not afraid to criticize Lincoln. And in the opening years of the Civil War, he compared him to Jefferson Davis. He literally compared him to Jefferson Davis because he was concerned that Lincoln wasn't moving quickly enough to put down the South. And he also was concerned that Lincoln had not seen the war as a war of emancipation. You know, that he, he thought that Lincoln saw the war as a war to preserve the Union. In his 1881 autobiography, Life and Times, Douglas said he loved Lincoln from beginning to end. But if you look at Douglas's newspapers uh, called Douglas's Monthly from the first couple years of the Civil War, you see that he's hugely critical. In 1863 and 1864, he twice met with Lincoln in the White House. They seemed to have got along. They found common ground. They liked each other. Lincoln invited Douglas to the second inauguration in 1865 and declared to people at the reception, and kind of unusual, he even invited him to the reception in the White House, that Douglas was one of his great friends. In 1876, Douglas gave the main speech dedicating the Freedmen's Memorial to Lincoln, and he said that Abraham Lincoln was the white man's president, which sounds critical. But if you look at the whole speech, what he seems to be saying is, yeah, he was a white man's president, but somehow we managed to do things good things uh, in terms of emancipation and other matters that helped African-Americans. And so I think you could say he especially admired Lincoln for being able to do good things, despite the fact that, like every other white person, there was some racism and some hesitation about embracing the cause of black rights. Your new book shows that the visits to, or certainly the visit to the White House uh, to meet his successor, President Andrew Johnson, wasn't as good, and and there was a, a there was a lot of tension there in the way in, in the way Douglas did not like how Andrew Johnson was trying to to deal with things after the assassination of Lincoln. Exactly, exactly. Um, the, the the book attempts to recover black agency during the first few years of. Reconstruction. And if you look at standard works on Reconstruction, you find Douglas mentioned here and there. It's like he does cameos, but he doesn't really do much. So what I try to trace is how Douglas was one of the early critics of Johnson for not embracing black voting rights. And he was able, with the help of his friendship with uh, Senator Sumner, to get a meeting with Johnson at the White House in February of 1866 along with a delegation of, of uh, fellow black activists who were calling on Johnson to do something about black citizenship. And what I argue in the book is that Douglas is a canny performer who sees that there is a stenographer there who's writing down every word that Johnson is saying and that the visiting blacks are saying. 
and that when he sees that Johnson isn't interested in the whole issue of black rights, he goads him. He tries to get him angry. And at a certain point, Johnson exclaims that blacks should leave the nation. They should be colonized. And the whole thing, the whole conversation appeared that night in a Washington newspaper. A revised version appeared the next day. And then it circulated everywhere, including in uh, black publications like the Christian Recorder. And what that, what that meeting did was it kind of unmasked Johnson. It was very skillfully done. And looking back on that meeting in his 1881 Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, Douglass goes so far as to say that he thought that the meeting and the way it was publicized changed the course of Reconstruction. It's almost the way people in the Trump White House seem to have recorded the conversations and then uh, produced them in books afterwards. Do, do you think that, that, that Douglas or one of his friends there was almost like taking a transcript of the meeting precisely so they could leak it afterwards? Right. Well, actually, the irony is that Andrew Johnson prided himself on being a politician, uh, first a Southern senator from Tennessee and the military governor of Tennessee and then vice president, he prided himself that he enjoyed meeting with black people. He even described himself as a Moses for black people. So when this meeting was arranged, it was Johnson himself who brought in this person named James Clefane, who had developed a new, very effective method of doing shorthand. So it was Johnson brought in the stenographer, and he wasn't part of the Johnson administration. He was just like a hired gun, as it were. And Clefane took it all down and then immediately brought it over to a Washington newspaper where it appeared that night. I mean, it was kind of incredible because we think of the speed right now of the Internet and and the so-called short newsstand. But that night, There it was, right in the leading Washington newspaper, and a revised, corrected version appeared the next day. And not only that, the next day included a response that Douglas and his son wrote up to the meeting. And that frames the newspaper account. So what I argue with the book is that Douglas had real media savvy. You know, he knew what he was doing. And it was kind of lucky that there was this person that was hired by Johnson, who took down the conversation. And there's also a surviving letter from um, an associate of Andrew Johnson that shows that right after the meeting, Johnson was using the N-word to describe Frederick Douglass. And, and we have that letter. It survives. It was never printed, though, because it was sent to an editor who was sympathetic to Johnson. God, extraordinary. Can we talk about Douglas's former master? Because I think Douglas met him in later years when he was a free man. And, and there's a huge mythology around that relationship, some suggesting that uh, the master may have been Douglas's father, that Douglas may have liked him, even though he criticised him in his, in his autobiographies. What was their relationship like and how did that meeting go? Right. I mean, the relationship is very tricky because... I think there is some truth that there was some affection between Douglas and Thomas Ault, his main master. I'm not sure that Ault was actually his father. No one one really knows. But one thing we do know is that Douglas, when he was young, tried to initiate a slave escape, like uh, an escape of a lot of enslaved people. 
and they were betrayed and they were captured. Okay, so what normally happens when you do that? You normally sent further south. Douglas was put in a jail for a couple of hours and then sent home. And to me, that suggests that there was some <laughs> affection there or some concern about, about Douglas. Now, over the years, Douglas expressed enormous hostility towards Thomas Ald, and I believe that that was there too. I mean, this is a person who was his enslaver. So Ald does not come off well in any of the autobiographies. Uh, the particular meeting that you're talking about occurred in 1877. So this is... 12 years after the end of the Civil War, and Douglas had been freed starting around 1847. He was bought out of slavery by his British admirers. But Douglas wanted to go back to the Eastern Shore, and I think the idea was for this black leader to lay claim to the Eastern Shore. The meeting has been sentimentalized, and it's somewhat sentimental in Life and Times. That's where Frederick Douglass describes it. But I have a whole chapter on that meeting in my book called The Lives of Frederick Douglass. And the argument that I make is that Thomas Ald is on what seems to be his deathbed. You know, he's just lying there. Douglass is lording over him. And I see a power dynamic where, where Douglass is um, not entirely on equal ground at all with this person. And it's Douglass who is claiming that he's forgiving Thomas Ald. And then in interesting, odd moment in this meeting is that Thomas Ald accuses Douglas of misrepresenting how Ald treated Douglas's grandmother. And this is a scene in all three of the autobiographies. The grandmother gets old and she's basically put out to pasture to die by Thomas Ald. And Thomas Ald at this 1877 meeting says, I never did that. And Douglas says, I agree, you never did that. And then you know what? The scene is still in the 1881 autobiography. And I think Douglas's point is, even if he literally didn't do that, that this, is, this, this scene that he creates as kind of a fictional scene speaks to some larger truth about how the slave system works. One other quick thing I'll say about that 1877 meeting, Douglas presents it in the, 1880, in the 1881 Life and Times as all on his deathbed. But in fact, he lived for a couple more years. So even that, he's kind of, uh, Douglas is kind of pushing things. So I, I argue in part that all autobiographies are fictions. And I think we can see that in Douglas. And they draw on truth. They speak to something truthful. But autobiographers work with narrative in ways that isn't exactly how we experience life, which is much more chaotic and non-narrativized. Well, Robert, that's a very good note on which to end our, our chat this evening. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about the many different lives of Frederick Douglass. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Professor Robert Levine and his books, uh, The Lives of Frederick Douglass, and most recently, The Failed Promise. 